it's absolutely manageable. Just remember to do dynamic reassessment. And if you do do that, you're not going to miss anything. You're going to stay either right on the curve or ideally ahead of it, and your patient's going to have a good outcome. Welcome to the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I'm your co-host, Alex Merkel. And I'm Josh Randles. And this is where evidence-based medicine meets unconventional warfare. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speaker's own, and nothing contained herein is to be considered the official opinion of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine or the U.S. government, including the Defense Health Agency, Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Navy, or Air Force. Hi everyone, this is Michelle Landers, founding publisher of the JSOM. I'd like to thank you for joining the JSOM's 20th anniversary interview series. We are excited to bring together a host of experts, all leaders in the soft medical community. In these interviews, we will be discussing the ever-evolving methods of treating battlefield trauma and injury, and how those methods have changed over the 20 years since the JSOM's inception. I hope you'll find these talks as informative as we do. And welcome back to another edition of our 20th anniversary interview series. We've got the privilege of chatting with another world-renowned expert, uh, this time in Snakes and Snake Bites. Welcome to the show, Jordan. Thank you so much for having me. Privilege to be here. Really excited to chat with you. And I know you've gotten a lot of traction recently after your JTS uh, weekly teleconference and also great education from Doc rush over on his podcast about some of your new education thank you appreciate it yeah and i'd sure love for you to review some of the information that he had on his podcast about the triple and quadrivalent medications there because some of that was above my head so i'd I'd love some space repetition on some education for that yeah absolutely but getting into it you want to give us a little bit of a background about what you're currently doing and and how you got there and more importantly what prompted your involvement with soft medicine, how that happened. Yeah, absolutely. So I started out as a herpetologist and planned on going in for a PhD in venomous snake research. I was running around Africa catching snakes and collecting venoms and doing things for anti-venom research, essentially, and then eventually realized I should probably have some medical training, discovered that I really enjoyed medicine, and decided I'd sort of tie the two things together and pursue snake bite because it's a pretty small field. It's basically either people who were herpetologists and then discovered medicine or doctors who developed an interest in snakes, but there's a handful of people that do it. So it was sort of one of those situations where even as a non-physician, just having a strong background as a venomous snake expert in, in Africa gave me a chance to develop this out. That's sort of where I started 10 years ago. And I kept running into some of the soft medics and soft teams over in Africa just basically doing snake work and would run into them and and get some questions about hey how do we how do we treat these bites realized that they really didn't have the capability at that point and we were still developing the capability as well but over the years as we sort of pushed forward our own model and um, you know with the snake bite foundation which we started a couple of years ago and found a way to do this really well in austere places i ended up sort of reaching out went to soma made some connections and just essentially wanted to make sure that the soft community had the ability to do this because 
if we're out in remote places without the level of resources that some of the soft medics have and we're able to do this, it seemed absolutely you know ridiculous that guys with excellent training and equipment and capabilities wouldn't be able to have the same same skill set and, and tools out there. Oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. And uh, I remember getting some company emails from the company we both worked for for folks in in Kenya with some pictures about black mambas that were getting found in folks tents and things like that. That kind of gives me the willies. I imagine you had a few of those experiences. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Got a lot of stories on that one. Oh my goodness. So this topic of snake bite treatment and education, it sounds like this was more of a civilian practice. It was translated to military practice. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's a, it's a very small field and it's so small that I think a lot of the innovations that we've been developing in the last 20 years, you know, not just myself, but really the people like Jean-Philippe Chapeau and Leslie Boyer and the folks that trained me, you know, we'd been pushing the boundaries forward and advancing the science, but I think no one really knew what the capabilities were because it's just such a small field and doesn't get a lot of press. And so that sort of, you know, ultimately led to this place where we are now. And I think if I remember, I read a manuscript from you in the JSOM recently, and it was talking about how one of the bigger barriers to this as well is the fact that we typically see mortality and morbidity for snake bites in third world countries. So the folks who have the money to, to make a difference aren't really being impacted by this topic. Is that right? Yeah, 100% right. And it's staggering numbers. I mean, we're looking at 138,000 deaths and 400 or 500,000 permanent disabilities from snake bite every year worldwide. But that's also got to be a huge underestimate because if you think about the number of patients who die in the pre-hospital environment out in the middle of Africa, get bit by a snake, a lot of folks are never going to make it to a clinic or they'll go to a healer and die before they get to a clinic. And so we really have no idea exactly what those numbers are. But I would venture that in Africa, you've probably got at least 50,000 deaths a year and at least 100,000 permanent disabilities from snake bite. So Kofi Annan called it the biggest public health crisis that you've never heard of. I feel like that was a pretty accurate description. Wow, that is quite a statement. And so looking at your information war campaign, how were you guys able to create a demand over here in the first world to really drive forward your policy and education? Yeah, I think a lot of that credit is due to the special operations medical community because you know we had had sort of had these ad hoc interactions over the years but started to get approached a lot more by real self-starter medics and folks in that community who just wanted a solution and they knew that we had some answers and pushed on the policy side to actually make that a reality and you know I kind of felt like I was yelling into the wind for years until we got to a point where a couple of individuals you know on the inside decided to grab on and push that forward. So yeah, a lot of credit due internally to, to your side of the house. That's great. And I think I rem- recall that there is a snake bite clinical practice guideline through the JTS coming out. And I just jumped on their website and I, I couldn't find it. Can you speak a little bit about how that developed and when we should be able to see that for public viewing? Yeah. So that is up there right now. It's a little complicated. So they still have one listed as bite stings and envenomations from 30th of March, 2018, which is what we just replaced. They're basically switching that around. They pulled snake bite out. It's We're going to rewrite that around sort of scorpions. But CPG 81 was released at the end of June, beginning of July. 
And that is the full JTS CPG for snake envenomation management. So same thing that's in the JSOM article, just expanded out a little bit more. And so this is now officially published. It's official policy that we're pushing treatment out to the point of injury. So that's been been pretty exciting. And as I uh, mentioned earlier, I heard some great education from Doc Rush uh, about some of the new treatments that are available. And would you be able to maybe give us a, a quick rundown about what different products are available in different markets and how they function or, or which would be selected? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think I can sort of tie this into the way that we've written these CPGs because the idea is really we wanted to give guys in the field a sort of simple, general, universal approach as far as how do you manage all of these patients? How do you assess? How do you diagnose? How do you take it down to a syndrome in each region, which basically lets you figure out how to treat without identifying the snake? And then going from that clinical syndrome, what are the appropriate antivenoms to treat that syndrome in the given area that you are located. So for every combatant command, we've identified a series of antivenoms that will be used to treat the three syndromes. So cytotoxic, hemotoxic, and neurotoxic. And we've got algorithms that are in there that basically you can flow down the chart, go by region, signs and symptoms, region again, you end up with, with what you need. Whenever possible, we have looked for field-stable options. And there are a number of freeze-dried field-stable options worldwide. The best options that we have right now are for AFRICOM and CENTCOM, and that's the PolySERP product line. Those ones cover more than 20 species each. They cover pretty much everything that can be treated in that part of the world or their respective parts of the world, basically a single source solution for the area and also really good safety margin. So rate of reactions is down to you know a fraction of 1%. Whereas with some of the older products, which some of them are still listed as second line because they're the best backups available um, if you can't get that. But some of the older products, we were looking at 70 or 75% anaphylaxis rates, which was just absolutely mind-blowing. So, you know, the new generation of antivenoms is very safe, very effective, and pretty easy to use when you couple it with these protocols. So for AFRICOM, we've got PolySERP. P, which is Pan-Africa, that covers pretty much everything in Sub-Saharan Africa. For North Africa, your North African snakes sort of trend into your, your Middle Eastern snakes and your Arabian Gulf snakes. So we use PolySERP M as the first line there. That's PolySERP MENA, Middle East, North Africa. And between the two of those products, basically, if you're in the Sahel or below, you want to carry P. If you're above and you're in North Africa, you want to carry M. And then for all of CENTCOM, you want to carry M, and that will cover everything except for bites by one type of snake. It's called Gloideus. It's not a common bite, and it's also not a particularly deadly bite in most cases, but there's a monovalent for that. So you'll see that in some cases, whenever possible, we've basically covered everything with as broad a net as we can. And every once in a while, there'll be something that slips through the cracks, um, in which case we'll find a, an appropriate monovalent if one exists. And by monovalent and polyvalent, I just mean monovalent is designed to treat a single species and a polyvalent is designed to treat multiple. So that's sort of where we're at for AFRICOM and, and CENTCOM. It's quite easy, great, safe, effective options. For SOUTHCOM, we're in a pretty similar boat. So for all of the viper bites, which are the ones that are going to cause hemotoxic or cytotoxic effects, we've got the 
Bioclone products, so anti-Vitamin Tri, and that's a very broad-spectrum polyvalent that covers hemo and cytobites. It's not going to cover your neurotoxic coral snake bites, so we've identified separate coral snake polyvalents for those bites, and those are going to be divided, again, by region into Central and, and South America. So if it sounds complicated when I'm saying it, it's really not. Just pull up the algorithm, and basically, you know, the goal is that guys who are going overseas, you should print this out, take the first part of the CPG, put it in your bag, right? That's the general stuff. Print out the regional stuff for your area. Look at the algorithm, look at where you're going to go, and make sure that you have coverage for hemo, cyto, and neurobites. Pretty much as simple as that. And so for all of Southcom, you can use one thing for the viper bites. And then for neurotoxic bites, you're going to have to split it into two products, depending on whether you're in Central or, or South America. For Northcom, we've got a couple of great options for rattlesnake bites. We've got a coral snake antivenom as well. Crofab and Anavip are both good choices for rattlesnake bites. Crofab has the advantage right now of being broad enough spectrum that it also covers copperheads and cottonmouths. So you can use it for any viper bite in the United States. It's not officially field stable, but there's good studies that show that it probably is. Anavip is a newer one. It just covers rattlesnakes right now. So if you're in an area with copperheads and cottonmouths, you'd be using it off-label for that. It probably would work for it, but it's you know currently not directly indicated for that use. Um, and then there's a coral snake antivenom as well. There's one option for that currently in the States. UCOM is the only place where we don't have a field-stable freeze-dried option at the moment. And there is one that's coming out soon. So Innosan is working on developing one for that area. It's not out yet, so it's not in the CPGs yet. Well, obviously, you know, we'll continually update these as things develop. But for the moment, we have broad spectrum options for, you know, all of Europe. It's just, it's going to require a refrigeration for storage. And then uh, I think the most complex one we're looking at is Indopaycom. And that's because it's a huge area. It's got a very diverse you know, group of snakes and a lot of different options. So if there was anyone who wanted to throw a DOD grant at developing new antivenoms to simplify everyone's lives, Indopaycom would be, would be the place to focus on. Essentially, for Southeast Asia, we've got great options from the Thai Red Cross. They're field stable, they're safe, they're effective, and we can split everything into either a neurotoxic polyvalent or a hemo and cyto polyvalent. So you just figure out which of the three syndromes you have and give the appropriate polyvalent for that. Once you head to East Asia, it gets more complicated where you got to break it down by region. So Korea, China, Japan, Vietnam, Laos, all of those places are going to have different versions of their product for the snakes that they have in their area. So it gets, yeah, East Asia could, could definitely do with a little bit of a a better solution, but Southeast Asia is pretty good at the moment. And again, we have identified coverage for all of these areas. It's just sometimes you're going to have to piecemeal it together, and other times you're going to have a really easy one-stop option. Oh, yeah. I've been chewing my lip asking you about Indopaycom. That seems like the 800-pound gorilla for most everything, actually. <laughs> um, and so let me ask you, because this is just a phenomenal amount of development in terms of different product lines. And the question with most of these exotic ones is, how much is it going to cost? And so how were you able to work with industry to create a product line that is going to be at a cost-effective price point for the third world? 
So we don't really have anything to do with anti-venom companies other than we use their products and we publish research on them. There's definitely a collaboration in the sense that everyone's trying to solve the same problem. So we can convey our experiences in the field and say, hey, for instance, the strength of the product that you have right now is not strong enough. And people need at least two vials and they're not able to purchase two vials. So you guys are going to need to come up with some sort of fix for that, whether that's changing the you know, concentration of different venoms in there to make it more potent against the common things or doubling up the concentration per vial, things like that. Antivenom costs vary really widely you know, around the world. Fortunately, you know, one of the things I didn't have to deal with writing these was figuring out how to acquire or pay for it. But, you know, as far as cost goes, so in the U.S., you're looking at pretty staggering costs for snake bite treatment, sometimes three to 5,000 a vial, and patients could need anywhere from four to 20 vials, um, and sometimes more. In the developing world, obviously, there's no way that would ever fly just because patients can't afford it. So the trick here is how do you find high-quality antivenoms? that will fit the need that you are trying to fill, but also are affordable enough that people can get them there. If you look at, for instance, like the South African product, so it's it's about $300 a vial, and that's what we used historically before we got these sort of what I think are better freeze-dried options. And the issue with the South African one is, you know, we'd usually end up giving, you know, for some serious bites, you'd end up giving 10 or 12 or 16 vials. The most I've given was 32 to a Gaboon Viper bite. So at 300 a pop, 32 vials adds up quick. And that only covered neurotoxic snakes and cytotoxic snakes, didn't cover hemotoxic bites, which if you're in West Africa is gonna account for 70% of your bites. So my understanding is, I think price is really gonna vary. I think the polyserp is somewhere, I think around a thousand a vial with a six vial course. So it's gonna be a lot cheaper than using most things that you would use. Polyserp sort of an interesting case because it's based on the previous product InnoSerp, but it's designed to fit sort of the needs of the operational medicine environment. So they've increased the potency, they've added coverage against other things that are much less common as far as bites, but also are really critical threat species that you do need to cover and things that are hard to get venoms from. And so, for instance, the South African monovalent for Boomslong is about $500 or $600 a vial. And Polyserp decided to throw that into their polyvalent so that you could get single source coverage with that. And so, you know, I think they've sort of split the model into a 90% solution that enables them to sell something to people in the developing world who need that 90% solution. And then also a sort of bespoke line of 100% coverage against all the oddball snakes that you really do need to cover. 90%, you know, 95, 99% of people in Africa are not getting bit by those. So it's sort of a greatest good model. And then also, if you can afford to get the sort of Rolls Royce version, then you're absolutely covered 100%. Does that answer the question? Oh, yeah, very much so. Thanks. And that's always one of the things from a public health perspective is how do we do the greatest good for the greatest number of people? And, and that's a, a great way to think about it. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, it's a complicated issue. And we actually, you know, work to get donated antivenom from antivenom companies whenever possible, because even at, you know, the cost of 100 or 150 a vial, if a patient needs, you know, really one vial is, is pretty devastating financially for them. 
And sometimes they could need six or eight vials for a really severe bite. And so our goal is to sort of make treatment free whenever possible, because yeah, even at that really low price point compared to where we're at in the US, you're still looking at a lot of people who just either are only going to get a partial dose or or realistically won't even purchase any because they can't afford it. Yeah, isn't that heartbreaking? Fair enough. Well, so glad that you are driving that forward and, and I think you've made leaps and bounds. And so I think we've talked about who the current audience is, which right now is generally soft medics and maybe NGOs and, oh, of course, probably host nation clinicians. Do you think that there's anybody else that would benefit from this education in terms of clinicians? Yeah. What we've created here, big working group, put a lot of work into this project and we really have made the best and most comprehensive document on snakebite management worldwide that exists. So I think that you're going to see a lot of people basing future guidelines off of these. Um, I've already received some inquiries from other militaries and other, you know, physicians working as snakebite experts for other, you know, allied nations and whatnot saying, hey, we want to revamp our protocols. Can we look at what you guys did and discuss this? But I think, yeah, again, in the NGO space, we're going to see a lot of this as well. One of the things we emphasize with these is bringing treatment to the point of injury. And that was that was sort of the biggest policy change that we pushed for here. And that that's because, you know, one, we can do it now. We have safe, effective freeze-dried antivenoms that can be used in every combatant command except for UCOM right now. And so that's a huge game changer. But the other thing is, you know, snakebite is, it's preventable death and disability if you get the right antivenom on board at the right dose early enough. But if you wait, you're dealing with potentially irreversible tissue injury or paralysis that could put somebody on a vent for days or, you know, even weeks if they don't get the right antivenom. So you have folks who, if they get this right away, you can essentially put out the fire before they get burned. But if you wait, and especially if you're somewhere like Africa, if you're waiting on a medevac, every hour that's wasted, you get at least a 1% increase in mortality. And that's based off of data in Nigeria, which didn't account for everyone who died before the hospital. So you're probably looking at a very large jump in mortality every hour and, and same with morbidity. So for us, the biggest thing was, you know, the special operations medics are out in the middle of nowhere. They have the capability to do this. If you can place a line and do a clinical diagnosis and treat anaphylaxis if it occurs, um, which is going to be rare with these newer ones that we're recommending, but it can still happen, then you can treat a snake bite. And so we're aiming it at paramedic level providers and higher. It should definitely be, you know, this is for physicians, PAs, nurses, you know, anyone who, who meets that level. But from what I've read, there's also some like expeditionary, you know, combat medic twist for 68 whiskeys right now. And I think, you know, they could potentially expand that out to other qualified providers. The key is just snake bites a clinical diagnosis. So you need to be able to assess and monitor your patient and figure out whether to give them more or not. So there's there's got to be a baseline of experience and training there. Mm, great background. That's some really startling numbers. And so you and I were talking beforehand about quantifying the benefit from all of these interventions. And I think they're still so new that it sounds like we don't have a lot of data points to show improved mortality. How do you think we can support getting good data, again, to drive modifications and treatment going forward? 
I mean, I think we've got to break it into civilian and, and military. And really, we specialize at our foundation in austere snake bite treatment. So we're doing the same thing that you guys would be doing. We do have good data in the sort of civilian austere snake bite research side that shows incredible decreases in mortality with early treatment with these antivenoms. And even with later treatment, we're still seeing really good results. Uh, our clinic in Guinea has been operating for quite a while and we've decreased you know, mortality there. I believe when Selu, who runs the clinic there, started it, it was like 20 or 30% and they're down to between one and 3%. That's just off the cuff numbers, if I'm remembering correctly, but that's what they're down to per year. So it's a huge decrease and they could get that even lower if they had patients arriving earlier. So those people that die are usually the ones that show up pretty late. So we know that this works. Um, we have a lot of good data from around the world that these antivenoms are effective. Everything that we've chosen are the products that have the best data behind them, but also the ones that, you know, among the community of snakebite experts, these are the ones that are vetted internally because it is hard to run, you know, a randomized controlled trial on snake bite patients in the middle of the developing world. It's got a lot of ethical issues and logistical challenges and just a whole host of things. But we have a lot of experience using these and, and knowing that they work. However, from the military standpoint, this is brand new. So there's definitely going to need to be some data collection. And I think it would be interesting to see not just, you know, for U.S. forces, but also for partner nations and whatnot, how many bites are they receiving because if you look at the numbers again they're huge numbers out in the developing world but the US military data right now doesn't show a ton of bites you know there was a fatality out at Manda Bay Kenya of a US soldier in I believe 2015 the french have documented far more bites because they actually have a system in place but a lot of the times snake bites are wrapped into bites and stings from things like dogs and bees so we just don't really know what the numbers are for the military right now and so i think it's going to be important to develop a system that can sort of parse that data out in the years ahead. And so based on your experience as a austere paramedic in AFRICOM dealing with these sorts of treatments, do you have any good direction or treatment for us about how we can specifically record this at the point of injury for the medic without overburdening them while they're taking care of a sick patient? So I would have to dig deeper into the sort of JTS registry and how things are reported. And it's something I've been meaning to do is talk to them about this. I think even if that information could just get forwarded to the working group right now, hey, I treated a patient, I can send the data to JTS, just want to put on your radar, something to that effect, we can then go back and track that. There's contact info in the JSOM article and, and also in the JTS CPGs. You can email me, you can talk to DOD advisor, and that's their telemedicine line for things like talks and other specialties. I think the biggest thing is just sharing that information up the chain. We're we're getting pretty plugged in, so I imagine, you know, it would get back to one of us at some point if there was a bite treated in the field, or I should say when. But yeah, definitely setting up some sort of a system would be ideal. I think for for those of us who have practiced in a far forward environment, there's always lots of good idea fairies, and the question always becomes implementation and follow up. And it sounds like you've got a, a wealth of experience doing that. Yeah, I mean, we're we're definitely pretty experienced treating the bites, but I, I absolutely agree. The good idea fairy has a tendency to ruin a lot of good things. So, it, you know, in a sense, that might be one of the advantages of this CPG is it's stripped down to what works and how do you do it. And it's a big document because snakebite 
historically has been neglected. So they're really, you know, it's not like ACLS where we can just put out a two pager and say, hey, you know, this is what you do now with COVID patients for ACLS. You got to put the background in, but the actual treatment we've made pretty easy. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think for me, the most important piece is just that you guys have the capability to do this. Because again, it's it's like the greatest tragedy with this is that if you had someone who was bit and they didn't have the right antivenom, you could have absolutely saved that person's life or limb. And it's just a basically a logistical matter at that point. And so to me, it's like, it's a no brainer that this capability should be rolled out. And ideally, you know, if they focus on that first and then put something else in place, I would still be happy with that. Yeah, fair enough. That's a, a great point. And so as we wrap up here, I guess I'd, I'd ask, based on your wealth of experience, again, operating in austere AFRICOM environments, what good nugget or piece of education or decision-making pearl could you pass along to some of our medic colleagues about evaluating and treating snake bites? Great question. I think the biggest thing I would give is that snake bites are dynamic, you know, incredibly dynamic. So I've had cases where a patient was bit and had only local signs for a number of hours and then developed systemic signs. And then it turned out he was bit in the leg by a dog when he was a kid and the venom was trapped in the scar tissue and you know bolused out after six hours. So you see weird things like that. The key is really good clinical assessment. Even in that patient, there was a lot of local pain, which we have worked in here as an indication for treatment. So learn the three major syndromes learn to recognize the major signs and symptoms of each. You know, we've basically given you three triads, so three signs and symptoms for each syndrome. But just remember that what you see at minute zero and what you see at minute 30 or, you know, hour three or hour six can be different. And so it's absolutely manageable. Just remember to do dynamic reassessment. Don't go back into it and say, oh yeah, you know, swelling looks the same no other problems, make sure you do that full snake bite assessment that we've detailed in there every single time looking for those specific signs of hemotoxic, cytotoxic, and neurotoxic findings. And if you do do that, you're not going to miss anything. You're going to stay either right on the curve or ideally ahead of it, and your patient's going to have a good outcome. I think that's my, my best pearl. Awesome. Well, thanks again for all your time and insight, and more importantly, your unending drive forward to improve care for our far forward medics in a really challenging environment. Absolutely. No, I appreciate um, appreciate everything that, that you guys do. And I should also add, you know, we've learned a ton from working with the special operations side of the house and a lot of the projects that we're rolling out right now, including, I'd say the best example is, is capnography with the EMMA to sort of guide airway management in austere settings. That stems directly from things that we've learned from special operations medicine community. So it's been a absolutely a fruitful two-way street in terms of learning, and, and we're very grateful for the chance to, to learn from your experience as well. Awesome. Well, Jordan Benjamin, founder and executive director of the Asclepius Snakebite Foundation. Thanks so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you. This is Sophia Rodriguez, director of marketing and social media communications for the JSOM. I want to encourage our listeners to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at JSOM Online, and to sign up to receive our free e-newsletter 
on our website at jsononline.org. We love hearing from our subscribers and followers and welcome your feedback and suggestions.